Well, good morning, everyone. Um, if we can turn our Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses uh, 15 to 26. Now, for those of you that do not have uh, physical Bibles with you, uh, there's a, a pew Bible that should be in front of you. And for most of them, it should be on page 973. And by the way, if you, um, again, don't have a physical Bible, uh, and if you'd like to, uh, we would love for you to uh, take one of these pew Bibles home uh, with you. It is our hope and our desire uh, that in the reading of God's Word that uh, He will make Himself known to you uh, in beautiful and wonderful ways. Now, Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 26 is what we'll be looking at. But first, uh, let me start us off this way. Um, <clears throat> being a pastor uh, means that my friendships with non-Christians and the way it begins and its dynamic can be a really interesting dynamic. Right? Most of the times, kind of uh, issues around kind of our religion and our belief system come very much later in life. Right? It's uh, seen by most people as a very private matter. Uh, but, you know, in kind of northern New Jersey, New York metro area, one of the first questions that people ask is like, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. And it's right then and there, people either clam up and say, okay, I'll see you later, and <laughs> I never come into contact with you. Or, you know, uh, they're, they, you know, they try to be as accommodating and, and tolerant as possible, and uh, we strike up conversation and that kind of a thing. And uh, as I've developed more and more non-Christian friends over the years, I've been fascinated by how they see me. And what I usually see is that uh, their reaction to the way I, in which I engage with the Christian faith and how that is expressed usually tends to go one of two ways. It's either uh, they see me as somebody who follows these kind of arcane uh, moral rules uh, maybe I'm dogmatic about them, and I can be at times uh, judgmental, right? So they either assume that about me, or at other times, uh, maybe when they're feeling a little bit generous, they go across the other end of the spectrum and say, you know, uh, Joe's a Christian, but he's like the okay kind, right? <laughs> he is uh, loving, and he is accepting of all people, right? He's not preachy at all like some of the other kind of more extreme Christians that uh, we've met. And in some ways, they see me as a, a, a believer and adherent to a religion that is just like any other religion that seeks to promote the common good. And therefore, yeah, we should not be offended uh, by Joe. Right? So, on the, other, on the one hand, right, I am seen as somebody that exemplifies the law side of Christianity. And on the other side, I am uh, exemplifying kind of the grace or the love and the acceptance side of Christianity. And that really, that kind of uh, polar opposite reactions that I get from people is at the heart of the conundrum that is Christianity. Is Christianity about grace ultimately? Or is Christianity about law? If you've been at church for any amount of time, you might have learned that salvation comes by grace alone through faith alone, right? That's all well and good, and we can affirm all of that and say, hey, Christianity is all about grace, but the catch is there are all of these rules that are typically associated with Christianity, right? You need to go to church, right? You need to read the Bible and pray. You need to obey the Ten Commandments. You need to give your money and your time and your resources away for God and for your neighbor, right? Uh, you need to be a good person, 
right? There are all of these rules. You better be, uh, have kind of sexual integrity, right? There are all of these rules that are attached to Christianity that is supposedly all about grace. Now, this conundrum that I'm speaking of is addressing not just apologetics, right, how we kind of talk to non-believers about Christianity or about theology, right? Is it about grace or law? But it's actually intensely practical, right? On the day-to-day, every single day from the moment we wake up, you and I, we make countless moral decisions, don't we? Right? How am I going to treat my spouse today? How am I going to treat my children? How am I going to treat my friends when I'm feeling grumpy and when I don't feel like being such a nice person to people? When I'm on the road, when a terrible driver cuts me off while I'm driving, how am I going to respond? Don't ask me that question. I'm, I'm working on it. Right? When I'm at work and I'm tempted to cut corners to get ahead, what am I going to do? When a colleague of mine is being annoying and I'm tempted to gossip about them or to cut them down in front of my superior, how am I going to react, right? There's all of these moral decisions that we are faced with every single day of our lives. And all of us, there's some kind of unwritten law that governs and directs our moral compass. Whether you are a religious person or not, we all have these set of laws that govern our moral selves. But I'll say Christianity, Christians may be unique in this space. Or I'll say we alone live in this murky space in between grace and law. Because most other people would be fine with law and say these are the laws that govern us and we have to adhere by them. But Christians alone would say, no, it is grace that drives everything. So is it grace or law? Right? And that's, that's what we'll be looking at uh, this morning and what we are to make of this relationship between grace and law and the Christian life. So Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 to 26. Let me read this for you. <clears throat> to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Now, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that by the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Amen. Uh, every single week we go through Galatians, you read a whole chunk of passage and you walk away and say, what was that about, right? 
Now, suffice to say, uh, there's a whole lot of mention about the promise and the law, right? And the promise, which we'll see is really a shorthand for grace in our, in our uh, examination of the text. And so we're going to look at the relationship between this concept of law and grace in Christianity uh, under uh, three headings. First, we're going to take a look at a question that is posed by the text. And secondly, we're going to examine the answer that is given. And lastly, we'll take a look at what difference it makes in our lives. The question, the answer, and the difference that it makes. First, the question. Now, if you were to take this entire text, uh, if you were to look at the central force of this text, is given to us by a question that is posed in verse 21. Verse 21 begins by asking, Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And that right there contains the force of this entire text. Now, uh, I want us to linger over this question and ask, the, ask why this question is so important. Right? Because the, the fact that this question even has to be asked shows that there is such a distinction between law and promise, which again is shorthand for grace, that to have one seems to negate the other. You can have the law, or you can, ha- you can have grace. And it seems as though they're so contrary to one another, it's to have one, it's to negate the other. Now, the simplest way I can put it is this. If you are a Christian, God's love and favor in your life is either going to be unconditional, or it's going to be Conditional. It's either going to be unconditional or it's going to be conditional. There is no mixing or confusion in between, right? We get this example from Paul, right? He says, well, let's say you have your kind of, you leave a last will and testament to leave your inheritance beyond how how that's going to be allocated, right? And once that last will and testament is uh, uh, written out and signed, it's more or less binding. So let's say you have two grown children, you have one who grew up to be a hedge fund manager, right, doing quite well for themselves. And you have the other uh, who is a starving artist, right, or maybe like a pastor, right? <laughs> and you decide as a parent to leave a whole chunk of your assets to the starving artist and less so to your hedge fund manager. Because you think, you know, the, the artist is going to need more of that, right? But let's say the day after you pass, your starving artist child blows up and becomes like the next Basquiat or something, right? And makes a whole ton of money, and the hedge fund manager loses all of their wealth, right? The legal document that was written out and signed is still binding, Right? It cannot be annulled according to the circumstances that come afterwards. Right? And that is the argument that Paul is making. Right? The promise that was given to Abraham, right? all of the favor and the blessing that we know now is ours in Jesus, right? all of that promise came by grace. And that's a promise that God hasn't gone back on when Moses received the law some 400 years later. And Paul's argument is that that same promise of God's grace upon your life will never uh, be annulled, right? God will never go back on His promise of grace and favor upon your life now. 
And so having received that argument, right, we have to make a decision. You will either base your life upon God's grace or His law, right? There is no in-between. And I want to pause here real quickly to say this. Your growth as a Christian, your growth in your understanding of the gospel will depend entirely, and I don't, I don't think it's hyperbole, I thought quite a bit about this, your growth in your understanding of the gospel would depend entirely on sorting this out in your life. Am I basing my life upon God's grace, or am I basing my life upon God's law? Am I motivated by the grace of God in my life, and am I going, am I going to live out of the security of knowing that I already have His favor, or am I going to be motivated by the law of God, and am I going to spend the rest of my life looking to earn His favor? Now, there's a story that um, famous British preacher uh, Charles Spurgeon tells, and here I have to give credit to Tim Keller because I heard him tell this story like a billion times, but I want to share it with you because it's so good. There's a story that Charles Spurgeon tells where uh, there was once a gardener. Some of you may have heard the story before. There once was a gardener who grew this carrot. And he brings this carrot to a king and says, Oh, king, this is the biggest, crunchiest, most delicious carrot that I've ever grown. And because you are such a wonderful king, I want to give it to you as a token of my love. And so the king receives this carrot and he responds by saying, Wow, what a gesture of appreciation. You know, I tell you what, I own this acre of land that happens to be right next to your garden. Now I can see that you're clearly a competent gardener, so here's what I'm going to do. I want you to have this garden, this acre of land, so that you can be twice the gardener that you were before. And so the gardener, just absolutely shocked, right, by this gift that he was given, he goes home rejoicing. And the story goes, uh, in the presence of this king, and during this time was a nobleman who happened to be in court, who raised horses, who heard this and said, hey, that's not bad business. I give a horse, I give, this guy gives a carrot and he gets an acre of land if I get my horse. And so, he goes to this king and he brings the stallion to him and says, oh king, this is the greatest horse I ever raised and I want to, uh, you to have this horse as a token of my esteem and love. And the king being sharp as he is, catching on to what this person was doing, just said, thank you, and started walking away. Now, while he is walking away, the king turns to this person and says, look, the gardener, he gave me the carrot, but you, you were giving yourself the horse. Right? The gardener was motivated by grace. Right? Here's this great king who's done so much for me. So I'll freely give to him, while the nobleman was motivated by the law. Right Here's an apparent law that I found that is going to secure me all these riches. If I were to just give him something, if I were to give him something, he'll bless me, so I'll give it to him. Right, One is a free will offering of gift and gratitude and appreciation. The other is a bribe. The other is a response to grace. And the other 
is a bribe, looking to earn and secure blessing. And this is what happens when law comes uh, before grace. And what I find really fascinating is that um, people who are constantly kind of espousing values and morals in our day can be some of the most judgmental, miserable, insecure, and fearful people you can ever meet. People who exemplify these values and morals in their lives and in their works typically don't tend to talk about it. But the more people talk about them, I see that they can be some of the most miserable people that I've met. Why? Because when I operate out of the law, I'm always on the lookout for what I can get out of it. Why? Because I am empty. I am not secure in the fact that I have God's unconditional love and favor. That's why I need to, with everything that I have, make sure that it is earned. And here's what happens. Most of the times, you will hang your head if you base your life upon the law because you uh, will not be able to meet its requirements. So either you will hang your head in shame or if you feel like you are living successfully in this, that you have done it, you will lash out in judgment against others. But in either of those responses, the common thread that goes between them is misery. You are never secure Right? And this is a danger of putting the law before grace. And friends, I have to tell you this. The biggest mistake that you can make as a Christian is to confuse the two in your life. Because, because religion likes to divide the world into two groups of people. Religion says there are good people over here and there are bad people over here. Christianity says no. No. It's not between good and bad people. It's between people who know that they're loved unconditionally and people who don't know that. That is a difference. And so what motivates you? Is it grace? Is your morality marked by freedom and gratitude, knowing that God's love for you is unconditional? Or is your motivating factor law? Right? Are you living bound by the pressure to be a good person? Right? Thinking that God's love for you is conditioned upon what you can do for Him. And that's what's at stake here. Right? And that's what the question is revealing to us. You can have grace or law, and you can base your life upon one or the other. But it's never both. And you're going to have to make a decision as to which you're going to base your life upon. But, so that's the question. But secondly, let's take a look at the answer. Well, so if living by the law, right, is so distractive to the Christian life, then the question is, well, then do we do do away with it, right? Is the law contrary to the promises of God, the passage asks us? And the question is certainly not, right? That's the answer that we get, right? We're told that the law and grace are not contrary to one another, But rather, and here's a key nuance that needs to be added to uh, what we're talking about here. The law and grace are not contrary to one another, but it is always true that one will inevitably serve the other. Do you get that? The law will either serve grace, or grace will, will serve the law. Now let me explain what this means for us. For most of us, myself included... 
it is normally the case that grace serves the law. Right? We try to be a good person. We try to live a moral life. Right? That is the end goal. Right? We want to be a good person. Right? Live up to the expectations that we have for ourselves, the expectations that society or our family or community has placed on us. Right? We want to be a good person. Right? And grace, right? so we try to live up to the requirements of the law, and grace is really only useful as long as we receive forgiveness. Like when we stumble and fail, we get to try again, right? Growing up, I, you know, many of us might have played Super Mario. Remember that? You're, you, it's a platform game. You have to get to the end goal. And at times you fall into a pit or something, you lose a life, right? But is that additional life that allows you to start all over again, right? That's what grace is. We say, okay, we have an unlimited amount of lives, but it is eventually up to us to get to the finish line, Right? That's the only use that grace has in our lives. Grace only exists to serve the law. But in the gospel, in Christianity, the order is reversed. Here, the law actually serves grace. And here's how. Let me give you two ways in which it does that real quickly. First, the law shows us our need for grace. The law shows us our need for grace. I think uh, there's a quote that could, should go up on the slide here. On the screen, um, St. Augustine once said, The law bids us, as we try to fulfill its requirements and become wearied in our weakness under it, to know how to ask the help of grace. The law, if you were to try and fulfill it, will weary us, but it shows us that we cannot in ourselves fulfill its requirements, right? Paul puts it more vividly in Romans chapter 7, verse 9, right? He says this, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul's saying, if it wasn't for the law, I would not have known that I am in need of grace. I would not have known that I am incapable of doing this myself. Let me explain it this way. Uh, <clears throat> what's really fascinating to me is that um, it's no secret that we live in an increasingly secular world. Right? We as a society as a whole has decided that moral absolutes right, that religious people talk about is antiquated and kind of we need to get rid of them. And so we decided we'll just do what's right in our own eyes and you know, we don't have the right to tell one another what's right or wrong. Right? That's what we decided. But here's what happened. I think we ironically, at least here in the U.S., have become more moralistic than ever before. Then to some degree, I think we can applaud kind of our society's efforts, I guess, to be good people, right, when there are no moral absolutes and try to find a way forward. But here's a problem we inevitably tend to pick and choose what is good. We pick and choose what is right and what is wrong. Right? We tend to champion people that are celebrities or political figures or various talking heads and we adopt their morality or you know, we stick to their moralizing depending on our liking and champion them. And when other immoralities are brought up in the world or other injustices are brought up in the world, we tend to dismiss them out of hand because they don't line up with our views of what is right or wrong. And unfortunately, what I've seen is that Christians are no different on this. 
for many of us, far too many of us, we get more of our morality from our favorite news outlets or pundits than from the Bible. But let me encourage you, when you go home, let me encourage you to read through. I know it can be challenging. But let me encourage you to read through the books of, let's say, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Let me encourage you to then jump over to the New Testament and read the Sermon on the Mount. And I have to tell you, if you're paying close attention, I don't care which side of the political or ideological aisle that you find yourself in. You're going to find something in there that is going to offend your moral sensibilities. They're all there. Whether it's social justice or individual accountability, right? Whether it's care for the environment or how we are to treat the poor and the marginalized in our midst or how we are to treat immigrants, the sanctity of human life, sexual integrity, right? The place of nationalism in the life of the people of God. You'll find something in there that is going to offend you. But why is it going to offend you? It's going to offend you because it tells us that we need grace. Because the law acts as a mirror to our moral selves and, to, and shows us that we are, at the end of the day, morally bankrupt. What the law does is it points to that part of our moral selves that makes us feel vulnerable. Like we are out of control. Parts that we don't want to think about. And especially in our context, in northern New Jersey, we hate feeling like we're out of control, don't we? You know, one of the things that I dread the most is uh, going to the dentist. Why? Well, because, like, you sit there with your, like, mouth wide open. And, I feel, and I'm like, I'm a grown man, and I'm like, I have my mouth wide open, and I'm drooling, and I have this guy looking into my you know, he's like all up in my mouth, right, looking at all my impurities. That, that's why before I go to the dentist, I, I, I make sure I floss. I brush my teeth like two times. I gargle mouthwash that I, I never do normally. I do it all before I go to the dentist. And I walk away with shame when I'm told I need to floss more often. And I'm like, I just floss. Or I need to make sure that I brush my gums better or whatever and get a free toothbrush and a toothpaste. <laughs> just, you know, makes you feel like such a kid and feel vulnerable. But see, that's what the law does to you, right? It reveals to us who we are if we were to take it seriously underneath the veneer of righteousness that we put on for ourselves. And friends, that's why Old Testament laws, right, those books are so crucial a lot of Christians like to say, oh, those aren't binding today, so we can just kind of dismiss them. No, if you were to read it with open mind and open hearts, you will just see just how profound they are because it reveals to the heart of God and it shows us where we are in contrast to His perfect nature. And it tells us that we, you and I, we do not measure up. What we need is not more fixing. What we need is not more doing. What we need is not more trying. What we need is a Savior. And that's the first thing the law does. It reveals to us our need for grace. But secondly, and this is kind of unique to the Christian ethic, 
And not only shows us our need for grace, it leads us to Jesus. Verse 24 says, So then the law was our guardian, Paul says, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. Now he says the law was our guardian. Now that's a really difficult word to translate. But basically it refers to this person that was common in every household uh, who would, uh, that's not your parents, someone who would basically take you by the hand and lead you to school. Someone who stood by you and made sure you did your homework and that kind of a thing, right? Kind of like your tutor, right? A hybrid between your babysitter and tutor, right? And the law, we're told, if it is to serve grace, now has the power to act as that kind of a person, to, as, as, as one leads a child, right, leads you to Jesus, to learn from him and to be united with him. Right? Here's another uh, Spurgeon quote for you, and it should uh, go on the screen. You know, there are times I read a Charles Spurgeon sermon, and, and I say, you know what, like, I got nothing else. <laughs> I just want to read you a Charles Spurgeon sermon and be done with it. But here's a Charles Spurgeon quote. He says, Just as foils set off jewels, and as dark spots make bright tints more bright, so doth the law make Christ appear the fairer and more heavenly. I hear the law of God curse, but how, how, how harsh its voice. Jesus says, Come unto me. Oh, what music. All the more musical after the discord of the law. I see the law condemns. I behold Christ obeying it. Oh, how ponderous that price when I know how weighty was the demand. I read the commandments and I find them strict and awfully severe. Oh, how holy must Christ have been to obey all these for me. Nothing makes me value my Savior more than seeing the law condemn me. When I know this law stands in my way and like a flaming cherubim will not, be lent her, let, will not let me enter paradise, then I can tell how sweetly precious must Jesus Christ's righteousness be which is a passport to heaven and gives me grace to enter there. See, this is where the promises of God are perfectly kept. Because if you stay with the law, it will condemn you. But if you were to let it, the law will take you by the hand to Jesus who says, in my flesh, I have obeyed perfectly all of God's commands. I have reflected in my life and in my words and in my deeds and even in my thoughts perfectly back to God the perfection that is to be found in Him. I have done it all. But you know what? I know that my Father has made a promise to you to be gracious to you, to be kind to you, to put his favor on you. And even though you do not deserve it, as is evidenced by your lack of love, by the lack of your commitment to justice, by the lack of your commitment to the poor and the marginalized, by the lack of commitment to living a life of integrity, I will keep that promise. And I will keep that promise if it is going to cost me my life. I will keep that promise if it is going to cost me the eternal torments of hell being borne down on my very body. That's the commitment that I have for you. And if that's what it's going to take for me to keep the promises of God to be unconditionally loving and favorable upon you, so be it. 
If you were to let it, friends, that's where the law will lead you to. The grace of Jesus Christ who has given himself to you. And that is what is going to seep deep down into your heart and change you from the inside out. So that you will live with a sense of security and not insecurity. And that is what is going to change the foundation of your life. So that everything that you do from here on out will flow from grace and not out of law. Right? And that's what we get. That's the answer that we get. Now, you may be saying, okay, all of this sounds good in theory. But you may be asking, like, what does it mean for my life in the here and now? Right? We still have, as I mentioned in the beginning, all of these moral choices that we need to make. And with so many of our motivations, like, are mixed up. Right? How are we to move forward? And for that, I want to go into the last point with just a couple of words there. <clears throat> last, let's take a look at what this means for us. And <clears throat> for this point, I want to get as practical as we can be here. Right? What can I do and how can I live in light of what was just said? Remember we said in the beginning, right, from the moment that we wake up in the morning to the point we lay our head down to sleep at night, we're bombarded with one moral choice after another. And if you were to say, listen, okay, like I know about this grace thing and I want to base my life upon grace and I want to be motivated by grace and that's how I'm going to live going forward and with each and every moral choice, I'm going to suss out my motivations and make sure that I'm doing everything right in line with grace and out of grace. And if you were to do that with every single choice that you need to make in your life, I guarantee you, you're going to be absolutely paralyzed. You're not going to be able to get out of bed. And I don't know if you caught on as I was saying this, if you were to kind of make the, the modus operandi of your life, ironically, you'll find that you're just as moralistic as you've been before. Whereas before, if you were moralistic about your behavior, now you're moralistic about your motivations, right? And this is where a lot of us give up, right? We uh, come to church, we hear stuff about grace, and we're going to change our lives and that kind of a thing. And we say, you know what, like... <laughs> I, I give up. My motivations are always tainted. So why even try, right? Why do I, why do I want to continue in this marriage, right? It, it is such a slog, right? And I know that I'm supposed to be driven by grace, but it's so hard for me to have the right motivations, and I'm just miserable in it, right? I, and I just don't see the, uh, the rainbow at the end of the road or light at the end of the tunnel, right? Why do I, why do I try, I know that according to kind of biblical principles, I need to uh, worry less about work and, and, and spend more time at home with my children because I know my children need me and I'm supposed to be the primary disciple maker of my children. But man, it is so hard. Teenagers are the worst. And I try and try and try and I want to have the right motivation behind it. But if I get rejection after rejection from my children, like why do I even try? I just want to send them off to boarding school. Let somebody else worry about them. I know I'm supposed to pray. Man, whenever I pray, it's such a slog. My motivation is not there. I'm supposed to serve at church, but people are so difficult. I'm supposed to give my money away, but it always hurts so much. Why? 
I'm supposed to pursue justice, but it always makes me feel so uncomfortable. Why? If my motivations are going to be off, why do I even try? And here, friends, is where grace comes in. Because if you understand that the grace of God is able to cover you, and His love is committed to you, not just through your failures, but even through your successes that are fueled by false motivations, that's when you can freely choose to do that which is better. Not because you have to, but hear me, because you want to want to. Right? That's the power of grace, because grace tells us that Jesus is pleased to meet with you where you are. And he loves you so much, he will not leave you where you are. He will take you to where you need to go. And so, you know what? With all of these moral decisions that we are faced with on the day-to-day, we can be freed to, with tainted motivations, pursue that which is better and not have to police our motivations every other way and to give, cast ourselves into arms of God's grace. And friends, as you continually apply this principle of grace into your life, even as you commit to the laws of God, you'll slowly be changed. When you start out driving, you have to remember which one is the accelerator and which one's the brake. You have to remember to put your seatbelt on. You have to remember to have the turn signals on. You have to remember to look both ways, and you have to remember to look in the rearview mirror once in a while. Right? The turn signals can be a little bit iffy, right, if you're starting out driving or if you're driving a new car. But after a while, what happens? You get in the car and you just go. As we start off this life trying to live a life that is beautiful, morally beautiful, trying to live a life that is pleasing to God, something that will ultimately um, lead to the flourishing of ourselves and those around us, it is going to be clunky. We're going to be doing a lot of things that we don't want to do. But if you were to say, we know that that is the way that ultimately leads to the common good, and if you are committed to the task for the flourishing of ourselves and others, eventually, when it is steeped in the grace of God, ultimately you will be changed. And friends, that's what it means to practice the law of God. And here's what will come true, and I love these words by the hymn writer William Cowper. There should be a quote on the screen. It says, to see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's leave that quote up there. As I shared just a couple of words. See, this is where a Christian's relationship with the law becomes unique. Because listen, have, have, if you recall what uh, Psalm 1 says, right? Psalm 1 is talking about this blessed person. And Psalm 1 says, His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on His law, He meditates day and night. Delight. Psalm 119 is basically a love song to the law and the scripture of God, right? Psalm 119, 103, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. 
Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. And you read things like this. If you're anything like me, you're saying, what? Delight? Right? Sweeter than honey. Right? To behold wondrous things out of this thing. Right? How is that even possible? I can barely get through the book of Leviticus. I, if I can barely even read this thing, how can I obey it, let alone delighting in it? And here's where your heart can begin to change. If by the grace of God you go from being a slave into a child, and we'll see the ramifications of this a little more next week as we move on into our, in our series. Right? This is where a moral life for you can become a beautiful life. Why? As you look into the laws of God, as it drives you into the arms of of Jesus, it'll make the grace of God sweeter to you. And as you behold Jesus, who is that gracious to you, you'll begin to realize not just what Jesus has done for you, or not just that Jesus died for you, but that he lived for you. And in his perfect life, what you will see is human life in its most beautiful state perfectly exemplifying the justice and mercy and the love and the righteousness of God and the freedom that he exhibits. And as you behold that beauty, what you will find is that you will be changed into his likeness. You will become beautiful yourself. The kind of beauty that exemplifies the law of God without you even trying. And that's when the law of God becomes sweeter to you. That's when it becomes a delight to you. And let me just close by saying this. In a fractured world that we live in, where there's this constant moralizing, when there's constant opinions being bombarded to us that try to pull us one way or the other in terms of what is right or wrong, I am more convinced now than ever that we need people who are going to be found in the grasp of grace, who are willing to turn to the law of God and find its beauty there and live it out. Because if you do so, the whole law of God, not just the ones we tend to pick and choose, if you were to take on and find the whole law of God to be beautiful, and we start to exemplify to the world we will be confounding to the world just as the law of God is confounding to the world. Because you will not fit in a category. And by your life and deeds and in your words, you will be a prophetic challenge to the world. And for those in the world that have eyes to see and ears to hear, by your life you will naturally draw them to Jesus to the grace of God. And all of this just by the way you live. And more than ever, we're going to need Christians who are committed to the values of the kingdom, not just with their words, but more so with their deeds. And by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, may Grace Church be a place that is filled with saints of God who exhibit this with their lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we um, <clears throat> thank you for your word and we thank you for the power that is in it. 
And God, we, with trembling hearts, give you thanks for your law, for in it we see your beauty, we see your commitments, we see your priorities. But God, as we look inside our own hearts, we know that we fall short because we don't exemplify those things. We like to pick and choose to make us feel righteous, to see if we can earn your favor. But God, we pray that your grace will come alive in our hearts so that it will change our hearts so that we may go from being a slave into a child so that obeying your law no longer becomes duty, but it becomes a choice, a choice that is driven by our pursuit of beauty and goodness for ourselves and for others. And I pray for our church now. We pray for your spirit to come. God, empower us to see your law and let it drive us into your arms and drive us out into the world with our love for your word and for your law. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.